how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hello, strangers. Welcome to a new episode of Strange Talk Podcast. And I'm pretty sure you're surprised that I'm still alive. But yes, I am still alive. I haven't, I haven't ended it yet. <laughs> but I've been away for a really long time. I know I've been on a hiatus, and I thought, you know, it's time. I've had enough time to be on a break and everything, so I've collected myself, and now I'm back. And it's good to be back. It's been a while. Um, well, mainly the reason why I've been on a hiatus was because, one, my PC wasn't working. For those that have been listening for quite some time, you would know that. So that's why I didn't really have my intro. So you're probably surprised to even hear the intro in today's episode. But I surprisingly fixed my PC. And long story short, I thought for some reason um, it might have been a virus, but it wasn't a virus. Then I checked. It was the RAM. Um, It was only detecting 4 gigabytes of RAM, but I actually have 8 gigabytes. And so when I actually took apart the PC and looked at it and inspected it, it turns out that I just forgot to put the, the RAM stick fully in. So now my PC is up to speed. It's back to its normal self. So I was able to actually, you know, set up everything and I'm recording for you guys the old traditional Strange Talk podcast way. Um, but also the reason why I've been away as well is because I've been sick for quite some time. Um, I, I still got drunk and everything during New Year's. And I, I swear to God, I had recorded a video, but I maybe because I was just so kind of fucked up on New Year's, I didn't let it upload. I really don't know what, but I had sent a message saying, I'm really fucked up. I'm really drunk. Happy New Year's uh, to all my listeners and everything. But for some reason, it didn't upload. So anyways, Happy New Year's. Hope you guys had a great Christmas and a great New Year's. And it wasn't too, um, too crazy for you. But yeah, so I've been sick. And um, I don't know if you can still hear it in my voice, but I've been having a coughing fit and everything. I've been at a fever for a couple of days. And then now I feel okay enough to sit down and actually record an episode. So I thought, you know, I had a break for a really long time. I think it's now it's time that I got back on that old saddle and got on that horse. That is Strange Talk Podcast. Uh, so hopefully I don't cough too much, but through the magicing, magicing, oh God, through the magic of editing, I will edit out the coughs because I actually had a coughing fit before I even hit the record button. So I'm hoping that my voice doesn't fuck up any more than it already has. And so today's episode, okay, today's episode is going to be an interesting episode that I hope I have for you guys. And it's actually been kind of really popular ones that I've had. I've had previous ones. So if you're familiar with my format and the type of shit that I do, you will know that today's episode, I thought, you know, hashtag new year, new me. I thought, why not and make it another disturbing 911 call? It's been a while since I've actually done one. And I thought, why not? Let's get a new 911 call. It's been a while. So I figured, why not? You know, plus they're really popular. A lot of people like them. 
and I figure I'm desperate <laughs> for more people to come and listen to the podcast because I'm pretty sure I lost a big chunk of people since I haven't been on my old schedule <laughs> like I used to. Um, so I figured, why the fuck not? But anyways, hashtag new year, new me. Let's get to it. So I hope you guys enjoy what I have for you today. Thank you for listening. And let's get on with the episode that is Disturbing 911 Calls. So that first phone call that you heard, that brief 911 call, was a man by the name of Dr. Ferrante who believed his wife was suffering from a stroke, as you could tell. Well, the reason why I chose to include it because you're wondering, well, you know, that is sad that his wife's having a stroke, but it doesn't seem like it's that disturbing. Well, let me tell you why it is disturbing, shall I? This article that I found explaining what's behind that phone call is from Wired.com, and it goes something like this. A University of Pittsburgh researcher was in court today in West Virginia where he was stopped by police during a road trip. The occasion was an extradition hearing, which began the process of returning him to Pennsylvania for trial. Neuroscientist Robert Ferrante, 64, who appeared only briefly, said he would not fight the transfer. What was he going to court, you may ask? Because it was believed that he poisoned his wife, who he called for 911, believing that she was having a stroke. The lawyers for Ferrante, a longtime specialist in Lou Gehrig's disease, have indicated, not surprisingly, that he denies the homicide charge. It's not clear, of course, how he'll explain the fact that he purchased a half pound of cyanide with his university credit card, which, according to the police, was not a material used in any of his research projects. Investigators also found witnesses who saw Ferrante experimenting with mixing up the creatine-enhanced energy drink that his wife, Dr. Autumn Klein, was taking in the belief that it would help her become pregnant. See, Klein, who was 41 at the time, and Ferrante had a six-year-old daughter, and she was hoping to have a second child. Perhaps she hoped it would save a troubled marriage. The police also turned up indications that she actually had been thinking about leaving Ferrante for quite some time. <clears throat> if it's true, if he used this love hoping against her, it, re- it reinforces something that I've said about poisoners. There are the coldest killers. Poison murderers, after all, are always premeditated, planned, and plotted, calculated. And if this is true, it makes the following text exchange released by the police evidence of that point. According to my calendar, I ovulate tomorrow, Klein wrote on April 17th. Perfect timing. Creatine was Ferrante's response, police say. Will it stimulate egg production too, Klein asks. Ferrante allegedly responded with simply just a smiley face. Three days later, she was dead. Suspicion of poisoning grew slowly. The fact that it grew at all was due to some very good detective work at the university's medical center. As Klein lay in a coma, there was no initial suspicion of cyanide poisoning. Ferrante himself was publicly querying friends as to what might have caused 
his wife's collapse. The hospital ran a spectrum of tests, and one of the results reportedly was an unusually high level of acid in her bloodstream. In fact, lactic acidosis, the buildup of lactic acid in the blood as the body is starved of oxygen, is a classic sign of cyanide poisoning. It's associated with poisoning through a variety of cyanide compounds, including hydrocyanic, hydrocyanic acid and the cyanide salt, sodium and potassium cyanide, and sodium nitroprusside. And you might predict that because cyanides do starve the body of oxygen, they destroy an enzyme crucial for cellular metabolism of the gas. The resulting cascading cell death eventually kills the victim as well. But before Klein died, some smart doctor saw those peculiar acid levels in her blood and decided to test for cyanide. Murder by cyanide is rare these days. It's a regulated poison, difficult to get if you don't work in the pharmaceutical or chemical business. In fact, in most places, it's usually not part of the standard toxicology screen. Last year in Chicago, for instance, medical examiners did not test for cyanide following the mysterious death of a man who had just received a lottery check worth more than $400,000. It was only months later, after being badgered by his family, that they ran the test and discovered he died by that very poison, at least partly due to the delayed investigation. No arrests have been made in that case. So that was basically what happened in that call, was he was calling simply for a stroke to cover up maybe... Well, obviously to cover up that he was poisoning her, but he figured he would get away with it because actually after he reported the call and the paramedics EMS actually showed up to his home, he made a weird request. He actually requested that they don't take him to a hospital that had a trauma center, which was actually located like no more than I think 10 minutes away. So it was the closest hospital and they had a trauma center there. He told them don't take her there. He instead requested that they take her to an actual farther uh, hospital that was actually 20 minutes away. And then he even um, told police after she eventually succumbed to being poisoned at the time they, it was unbeknownst to the police, but he actually said that he did not want an autopsy. He just simply wanted to cremate her and that was it and be done with it. So, you know, if <laughs> always blame the husband. I hate to say it because I'm a man myself, but, you know, always blame the husband. So let's move on to the next call. 911. I need a deputy to come to my house. What's your address? 173 Valley View Drive. 973 Valley View, what's going on? My husband has committed suicide. Okay, what's your name? Heidi. Heidi, uh, hand one second, okay? That's pick up squad to Valley View for a 58. Oh my god! Heidi, hang on a second. Oh my god! Heidi, hang on. Oh my god! Oh my god! Heidi, just stay on the line with me. Hang on. <laughs> Nine, I need you to go to 973 Valley View. 973 Valley View for a 58. Oh my God. No, negative. 58. Heidi? What? I know it's going to be hard. Did he, what did he do? I don't know. I don't know. I came home and he's got a plastic bag over his head and he's sitting in the garage. Um, 
see you. I can't touch him. I'm not going. I can't go in there. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Heidi, can you go and check if he has a pulse? He doesn't have a pulse. I can see his hand on his sleeve. He what? <laughs> Heidi, Heidi, <laughs> Heidi, calm down for me. Heidi, 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 I need you to breathe. <laughs> Heidi, talk to me. Oh my God. Um, um, Mary, I don't know what he did. Okay. Heidi. What? Breathe, okay? If you have to, you can go outside, okay? Just step away. No. Oh, oh, my God. I have Hi four Okay. Oh. Heidi, don't let them go near them, okay? Keep them out of the garage. Heidi? Heidi? Is he out there? Okay, ma'am, I have a deputy that's there, okay? Oh, never mind. Okay, he's... No, he's warm. Heidi? Heidi? He's so warm. Did you check if he has a pulse? I'm trying. Okay, I know. You can do it. Heidi? Oh, my God, I don't know. I don't okay. think so. Heidi, Heidi, you're doing good. Does he still have the plastic bag over his head? Wait. No, he's. I think he's moving. Okay. Jesse. Heidi. I can't tell her. Heidi. Heidi. It's fine. Heidi. I need to reconfirm your address. Nine seven three Valley View Drive. No, one seven three. One one seven three. One seven three Valley View Drive. There are two cars in the driveway. Okay. One seven three. Okay. Was he moving? Is he moving, Heidi? Can you get the plastic? I don't, I don't know. Okay, can you take the plastic bag off of his head? I'm so scared. I know you can do it though. Jesse. Can you try, Heidi? No. Oh, Heidi, Heidi, it's okay. Heidi, right, calm down. Okay, you can do. <laughs> Heidi.
On the Valley View Drive off of Walnut Street in town, correct? Yes. Okay. I just, we just want to make sure. All right. Yeah, there's one off of Okay, Heidi? What? Is your last name Peterson also? Yes. Okay, what's the callback number for you? 614-208-4183. Okay. It sounds like it's going yeah, one second, Heidi. Yeah, she said you the pocket lid, but she's discouraged. So. Yeah. All right. Let's see, and hand one sec for me, Heidi, okay? Come on. They're on their way, okay? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Heidi? Oh, my God! Heidi? Heidi, can you hear me? should be there shortly, but you're going to need to calm down, okay? That way you don't want to wake them kids up, right? Oh, fuck no. Please don't let the deputies come up here loud and don't say where I mean, no light. She's, she's, trying to, she's trying to get a pulse, so she can't do anything to My kids, my children's bedroom, face the front. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Heidi? Oh, what? Okay. Were you able to find a pulse? On your heart. I don't feel a pause at all. You don't, okay. Okay. What time did you leave? I just got home. Yep. Did you did you work today? Yes, I was at training in Zanesville. You're training in Zanesville? Yes. What time did you leave at? Uh, I left I was like gone this morning. I in EM in EMT training and I was gone and I was I've been gone since uh it looks six thirty this morning. Okay. Okay. And you just got home right when pretty much right when you called us? Yes. Okay. How many kids do you have? I have four. Four of them? How how old's the oldest? Ten. Ten? Well how about the youngest? Three just turned three a week ago. Okay. All right. You gotta calm down, okay? Just my little dog to turn their fucking lights off. Heidi, <laughs> they, 
have to, Heidi, they have to get there quick, okay, just in case. They passed the road, told to turn around. They passed it? Yes. Okay. Please, please tell them to turn the lights off. It's going to light my phone off. Okay, hang on a sec, Heidi, all right? Which one's went up there? Heidi? Heidi? A deputy's there, okay? Don't turn the lights off, my kids! Okay, Heidi. They're in the front, they're going to wake up for me. Heidi, there's, Heidi, I know you don't want to wake your kids up, but there's going to be a lot of people in and out of there, okay? <laughs> Heidi? Thank you. Heidi, I'm going to hang up now. You have, the medics and deputies are there, okay? So that phone call that you just heard was from Heidi Ann Peterson. She called about her husband, who she found had committed suicide by way of wrapping duct tape around his neck with two plastic bags over his head, suffocating himself. And she posted that actually on her very own YouTube, which you can find by her name, which is Heidi Ann. And she was met with a lot of criticism for even posting that video a lot of people said that they felt like she was exploiting her family or that it seems kind of tasteless to put something out there. But in her own words, in the actual description, which is where I'm getting this from, this is what she happened to say to those people that said those negative things. Stay alive. Think about it. Sleep on it. Be here tomorrow. I am the owner of this video. I wish I was not, but indeed, this is my family. This call was made by me on October 20th, 2016. I will continually delete ugly comments as I find them. This post is meant to save lives, not tryouts for a Jerry Springer episode. So if you have nothing nice to say, shut your mouth. You will be deleted, reported, and blocked. In the comments, you will find a few individuals that question why I would share such a video. Why would I put this out there and risk my children hearing it and becoming further victimized by this event? Allow me to respond to those questions, comments now. The only victimization that has occurred towards my children was done so by their father. Had he had not ended his life, we wouldn't have this audio. Prior to sharing this video, my children and I alone listened to this, discussed it, and felt compelled to do something with our pain. My children wanted this up to show men and women what killing yourself does, specifically in the first few moments following your death. This video fails to show the hell we endured in the months and years after. I have been questioned as to why I didn't perform CPR. If you listen in the beginning, I said he didn't have a pulse. I knew he didn't because I could visually see he was deceased, but, but the dispatcher, I don't fault him, convinced me to check anyways. My husband had a significant amount of duct tape securing the white glad bag to his neck, making a cardioid pulse impossible. I went quiet when I grabbed his wrist, attempting to find a pulse, a pulse, feeling mine instead, which made me think he had one despite what I visually concluded. I was in shock. When asked to remove the bag, yes, I was scared. I didn't want to see his dead face. I didn't want that memory, and I knew I couldn't just pull it off. I had to tear it. While I didn't articulate to the dispatcher that I removed it, 
I did. I tore a hole seconds after he asked me to do so. This is why you hear a significant amount of screaming following the dispatcher asking me to take off the take the bag off. I was not attempting to control the manner in which law enforcement and medical care arrived for any reason aside from waking my children. The sheriff's and ambulance took 12 plus minutes to arrive despite me only living two minutes away because dispatch heard my address wrong. It happens. 12 minutes for me to go crazy worrying my kids would awaken. I kept going from his body to the door looking down the hall to make sure the kids didn't wake up. It was later discovered that Jesse purchased the supplies for his suicide some three plus hours prior to ending his life. Plenty of time to change his mind. Jesse Peterson is her husband, if you didn't know. <laughs> Again, none of this would have happened if Jesse had not ended his life, leaving four children to figure out how to process this alone. Yes, I have been here all along the way and never left their side, but regardless, our children are humans capable of free thinking and their father left them with pain and trauma immeasurable in any form. Get the help you need before you even consider this as an option. The act of suicide is selfish and I will soapbox scream that until the day I die. I don't hate their father. I never bash their father. But to show my children the color purple and have them believe it to be yellow will not happen. Very soon, my oldest two and myself will be doing a video live so you can all see what amazing humans they are, they are in despite of what they have lived through. Thank you to all the supporters. My children greatly appreciate it. To all the negative comments, my children appreciate that as well. It creates a significant amount of resilience I couldn't alone create. Just stay alive, folks. And that was taken from our actual YouTube video. So if you're curious, just go ahead and search Heidi Ann and you'll be able to find that 911 call and various pictures that she posted of her husband, Jesse Peterson. Well, let's move on to the next call. Yeah, 
yes, he slammed the door in my face. So I kept knocking. I thought it was a mistake. I kept knocking, and then I called 911. You saw him go back into the house when the flame, right before the flame? He didn't ever leave the house. He just opened the door. The kids were, kids were one step ahead of me. They're five and seven. They were one step ahead of me, and he slammed the door in my face. And you think he might have done this intentionally? Yes. Johnny, go ahead with what you need Thank and pass that on to my Thank you very much, Fire. Ma'am, what is your name, please? I'm Elizabeth Griffin Holland. I'm the supervisor. Okay, hold on, Elizabeth. Hold on just a moment, ma'am. Okay, so your last name is Griffin what? Griffin Hall, G-R-I-F-F-I-N hyphen Hall, H-A-L-L. Okay, and your phone number is 360-990-9955 is your personal cell number. Is that correct? on the same court. Okay, so you're waiting down the street at 8112, 109th Street Court, 189th Street Court East. Yes. Okay. And are you in your car? I was in my car. I'm standing outside it right now. Okay. Is that your home? Is that your home address? No, that's not my home okay. address. I was the supervised visitation coordinator. I picked the children up. What is this person's name? His name is Josh Powell. Just a minute, the sheriff's here. Let okay. me tell him the go ahead and talk in the house. Go ahead and talk to the officer, ma'am. So that audio that you just heard from that 911 call was actually from a social worker. I believe her name was Griffith, I believe. I could be wrong if I'm not correct on her name. Sorry about that. But uh, what had happened was she went to a house that she was assigned to for a supervised visit of the husband's or, well, the father's name of the two boys that she was supposed to supervise while the father visits. His name is Josh Powell. And honestly, his this particular phone call on this his case, actually, because it's actually a bigger thing, could be an episode of itself, but you're about to get everything here because I found an article about it. But there was actually two uh, 911 phone calls that Miss Griffith had placed, the social worker. The first one, honestly, was very boring and very long, so I didn't really include it. The second one, which you heard when the house burst into flames, uh, well, what had happened was she was supposed to go there for a supervised visit, and as she was walking, the boys were in front, and the father was behind the boys, and the social worker, Miss Griffith, was behind Josh Powell. And as he entered the home, he did not let her in, and she slammed the door, and that's when she proceeded to call 911, not once, but twice. And when she did so, uh, fortunately, it took a very long time for a deputy to even head out there. It wasn't until the emergency grew quick, quicker and it escalated to the point where the house burst into flames. Um, so I found an article that explains all of what Josh Powell is suspected of and everything. Uh, so here we go. Let's just dive into the news article. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. So Susan Cox Powell wrote in what she labeled her last will and testament, penned in blue ink on college rule notebook paper and folded under a top sheet that read, for family, friends of Susan, all except for Josh Powell. Husband, I don't trust him. She dated it in June 28th of 2008, and about a week later signed up for a safe deposit box at a nearby Wells Fargo, where she stashed the will, some saving bonds, and a few other legal documents. Susan was last seen alive on December 6, 2009. Investigators opened the box on December 15th. 
According to numerous accounts, including the 18-part 2018-19 KSL News Radio podcast, Cold, which probed the circumstances leading up to the 28-year-old's disappearance and sifted through everything that has happened since, Susan's marriage had became had become untainable. I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now, Powell wrote in the will. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work, which would not be accessible to my husband. A devout member of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she's, I'm not sure why I'm laughing when I said that, but anyways, she clashed with Josh and her father-in-law, Stephen Powell. Stephen had met wife Terry Powell, the mother of his five children, through the LDS Church, but he became a fierce critic of the faith and left the church in the mid-1980s. He and Terry divorced in 1992. Terry and others swore in statements pertaining to the divorce that, over the years, Stephen, once a friendly, fun-loving, basically normal guy, had turned belligerent and paranoid. Josh and Susan met through the LDS Church in Puyallup, Washington, where they both grew up and she was 18. I've got to have someone who's strong spiritually because I'd get rather... Because I get rather, I'm not as good a person. Rather depressed, moody, irritable when I get away from things that I know are right. Powell wrote in a diary entry dated December 13th, year 2000. Part of a trove of written audio diaries collected during the investigation and obtained via records request by Cold, the podcast that covered the case extensively. So if you're interested in hearing about Josh Powell extensively, I would recommend going check, checking out the podcast called Cold. Cold. Code, cold, C-O-L-D. On December 30th, he wrote, I am not a standard person. Many people find it difficult to remain in my company over extended periods of time. Susan has loved every minute with me. She loves the things that other people cannot tolerate about me. Josh proposed less than a week later, and they got married on April 6th of 2001 at the Portland, Oregon Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Meanwhile, Stephen was very controlling and held undue influence over Josh, his eldest son. He also had a bizarre obsession with his daughter-in-law and would sometimes shoot video of her without her knowledge. He didn't realize his video camera was still on when on July 13, 2003, he confessed to Susan in his truck that he had feelings for her, sharing that he'd become aroused while rubbing her legs months beforehand. <laughs> Susan didn't speak to Stephen for months afterward and was upset with Josh ultimately and was upset when Josh ultimately forgave his dad. Susan and Josh moved to Utah at the beginning of 2004, and not long after they relocated, Josh stopped going to church. In emails from 2008 that were shared with the Salt Lake Tribune, after she disappeared, Susan wrote to friends about being uncomfortable around her father-in-law, who had written a creepy song about her, and about how increasingly unhappy she was, and how controlling and prone to conspiracy theories Josh had become. I want him in counseling, on meds. I want my husband, friend, lover back. No more crazy. Outrageous, outlandish beliefs, opinions. Read an email to friends dated July 11, 2008. Also in 2008, on the advice of an attorney, Susan made a video detailing her assets. As relayed on the podcast Cold, in June of 2008, Susan had her friend take shorthand notes while she talked about a huge fight she and Josh had just had. The friend... Chrissy Helwell wrote, 
Josh said the reason he is mean to Susan and hurtful and the reason the marriage is broken is because of the Republicans and economy and environment. They had argued over wanting control over her own finances so she could donate to the LDS church at her own discretion. She had eventually opened her own bank account because Josh would change the password and otherwise try to shut her out of any joint account. He said if you pay tithing when you're not supposed to, you are going to hell. Hellwell's notes continued. Susan threatened to call the police. He laughed and she locked herself in the closet. He kept trying to open it and said she was acting like a child, Hellwell wrote. The next day, Susan went to work and wrote out her will. With the 10th anniversary of her disappearance coming up and the case still open, Oxygen, the network, re-examined the evidence and interviewed investigators, attorneys, friends, and family members of the two-part special, The Disappearance of Susan Cox Pell, premiering tonight. <laughs> I still to this day believe that they had enough to arrest him. Dennis Ernest, Susan's sister, I'm sorry, Denise Ernest, Susan's sister, said in an interview for the show, I know they had enough to convict him. Him being Josh Pell, the only person of interest ever named during the investigation to what happened to Susan back in 2012. With authorities still debating whether or not to charge him, he killed their two sons, Charlie and Brandon, and himself, which is what happened in that phone call. So it's all coming back. That's the whole point of reading all this and everything. I just wanted to get everything out there because not only did he kill his two children, Josh Pell (laughs) killed his two children, but he's also the number one suspect and technically the only suspect in the disappearance of his wife, Susan Cox Powell. At around 12.30 p.m. on February 5th, 2012, the children arrived at Josh's rental house with a social worker for a supervised visit. The boys ran ahead and Josh, 36, locked the woman out. He then attacked his, his kids with a hatchet and set fire to the house using an accelerant to hasten an explosion. I knew that it was possible, Chuck Cox, Susan's father, told reporters afterward. I knew that he was capable of something if he was pressured and pushed. If he felt there was no hope, he was capable of ending their lives and his life. But to do it in such a manner by burning your own children, I just couldn't believe that would have happened. They were beginning to verbalize more, Cox family attorney Steve Downing told the AP per Washington Como News later that day. The oldest boy talked about that they went camping and that mommy was in the trunk. Mom and dad got out of the car and mom disappeared. Donning said that seven-year-old Charlie had drawn a picture at school depicting his father driving a van with him and brother Brandon in the back seat and their mom in the trunk. The kids had been saying, mommy, mommy's in the mine, the attorney said. This past January, Jason Jensen, a private investigator and co-founder of the Utah Cold Case Coalition, said that his group had arranged for an additional search of several of the hundreds of mine shafts doting Utah's West Valley, not all of which had been thoroughly swept during the two-plus years the official search for her was active. West Valley City Police have said they searched and cleared about 400 mines in western Utah and eastern Nevada. A police spokeswoman told ABC4 if the mines they intend to search have not been searched and there is credible reason to search them, we would likely do so, but the credible reason to do so is the key. Jensen said, just because they haven't found her there yet doesn't mean they can't find her. The spot they planned to search near Topaz Mountain was a few miles away from where Josh claimed he took his sons to camp the night his wife went missing. The Salt Lake Tribune reported that Josh had once told a friend that if you knocked a little, 
wall of a shaft loose, it would all come tumbling down and no one would really want to travel down, down it because they are all so unsafe. Searchers found charred wood near Topaz Mountain in 2011, but investigators couldn't link it to the Powells. Winds sometimes expose skeletal remains. It doesn't hurt to try again. That applies in every case that we're working. There are still more than 200 unsolved murders and disappearance in Utah. You have to try. Josh told police that he'd left Charlie and Brandon, then four and two, to go on a camping trip shortly before midnight on December 7th of 2008. Never mind that it was winter and records showed the temperature plunged to 16 degrees that night. The first thing he did upon his return was seemingly lie to the police, telling the officers awaiting him in his driveway that he had turned his phone off to converse, to, I'm sorry, to conserve the battery, having forgotten his charger. Officers could see a charger sitting in the front console of his van. Susan's cell phone was also in the van and Josh couldn't explain why. According to court documents unsealed in 2012, there was no visible sign that a crime or even an altercation had taken place, but a trace of Susan's blood was found on the next floor to the sofa. Her purse was still in the house, and investigators noted a couple of fans set up to blow air at the couch, which was wet. Josh said they had just had the couch cleaned. Police didn't find sedatives or anything else that could have been used to drug her in the house, and a lone cooked pancake found in the trash can tested normal. Authorities later dismissed a theory raised in Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris's 2014 book about the case, If I Can't Have You, that Josh poisoned her. Josh suggested his wife ran off with another man, a fellow churchgoer, a theory seconded by his father. Susan's very sexually motivated, and she's very financially motivated, Stephen Powell later said. She's absconded. We don't believe she was abducted. We don't believe she was murdered. Police determined that Stephen was in Washington on December 6th and the 7th of 2009, but as it was later noted, his apparent obsession with Susan would have come in handy as an alternate defense theory if Josh had ever gone on trial for murder. On December 8th, Josh rented a car which he drove for 800 unexplained miles before returning it to Salt Lake City International Airport two days later. In the meantime, he purchased a new cell phone and activated it in Trentmonton, Utah, about 80 miles away from where he and Susan lived. The week after Susan disappeared, Josh, who had filed for bankruptcy in 2007 claiming $200,000 in debt, withdrew all the money in her IRA. And then Josh moved with the children back to Puyallup, Washington. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Breaking his public silence on his wife's disappearance to the Salt Lake Tribune in November of 2010. He told the paper that Susan was a good person and a good wife and a good mother, but also extremely unstable. So long as her family was demonizing him, demonizing him, my bad, and characterizing her as some sort of saint, she wouldn't be able to come back, he said. She doesn't have as much strength as they like to think she has, Josh said. He claimed that Susan's father, Chuck Cox, was a controlling one and that her mother, Judy Cox, was excessively emotional and prone to crying jags, and perhaps that's where Susan got it from. So, again, if you want to learn all about this case, because that's what happened, and it's a sad, unfortunate case, it's an interesting one, I probably might just do an episode all of my own, because there is a hell of a lot more details, a lot more extensive stuff that I could get into, so please, um, if you want to hear an actual full, like, blown episode about Josh Powell and the disappearance of Susan Cox Powell, then please, um, if you follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, you know, send me a DM or just comment on a picture and just say, hey, yeah, make an episode of it and I'll be more than willing to make an episode 
that's just dedicated simply to this particular case. But going back to the actual 911 call, I know it's already been a long one, but going back to the actual 911 call, as he as the social worker was actually calling 911, that's when he began to murder his two sons and actually blow the house up, killing himself in there too, in the blaze. I don't know if he like shot himself prior, don't know, but he died in that blaze, I believe. Um, is I, I mean, I could be wrong. Like I said, I don't really, I'm not too familiar with this case because I've seen some other, um, I've seen some other stuff going on saying like, where is he today? So I don't know if he's still alive, but if I'm not too mistaken, he killed himself in that fucking, in that fire, but who knows? So let's move on to another call. 911, what's the address of your emergency? 7190 Raymond Place. Okay, what's going on there? I just shot my wife. You just shot your wife? Yes. Okay, sir, are you in the house right now? Yes. Okay, why did you shoot your wife? We had an argument. Okay, where's the gun right now? It's in my drawer. It's in the drawer. Okay, is she is she still breathing? No. Okay, what is your name, sir? Helen Osterhout. Okay, are there any kids in the house? No. No kids in the house? And you put the gun in the drawer? It is. I am done. Okay, where are I you? I am afraid that I have done the most heinous thing I have ever done in my life. Okay, listen, I'm going to have the officers come there, okay? Yes. I don't want I'll you to I don't want you to do anything else with the weapon. Can you can you go in the other I'll room? I'll be outside. I am I'm not going to. Okay, listen, I'm going to stay on the phone with you, okay? It doesn't need to be. Okay, well I I need to stay on the phone with you, okay? Where is your wife at? In the bathroom. Okay, and you said the gun is in the bedroom in the drawer? I have done the most heinous thing in my life. I couldn't. Okay, sir. Oh, my Okay, God. just stay on the phone with me, okay? Oh, oh my God. I've done this. Oh, my God. Okay, just try to relax, okay? Are you going outside? Hello? Sir? So that phone call that you heard was by, I believe he said his name was Alan um, Oysterhout. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but I believe that's what he said. But uh, Alan Oysterhout, um, what he did was actually murder his wife or, well, shoot his wife. And um, I found an article pertaining to that case, so let's dive into it. Raymond Carter showed up to courtroom E on Thursday with the photo of his smiling mother on, under his arm. I found this from Tampa Bay Times. That's where I found this article from. Uh, Carter sat through two days of testimony this week as a prosecutor tried to convince a jury that his stepfather, Ellen Osterhout Jr., murdered Maria Osterhout during an argument last year at their Spring Hill home. Carter watched along with jurors as images were shown of his mother's body, clad in pajamas and black slippers, lying on the white tile floor of the master bedroom. 
He listened three times to the 911 call Alan Oysterhout made that night, the key piece of evidence in the state's case. On Thursday morning, a fluorescent light gilted off the photo's silver frame. Carter heard the court clerk say, guilty. After about two and a half hours of deliberations, the six-women panel convicted Osterhout of manslaughter with a firearm. The 63-year-old retired air conditioning repairman had been charged with second-degree murder and faced a maximum sentence of life in prison. The conviction on the lesser charge means Hernando Circuit um, Judge Anthony Taddy could put him behind bars for as many as 30 years. Sentencing is set for October 29th. Osterhout, who has been out on bail since his arrest, showed no emotion as the clerk read the verdict and bailiffs led him away. It's not what we came here for today, but at the same time, he didn't get to go home today, Carter said. Oysterhout broke a 19th month silence when he decided to testify on Wednesday. He said he was dozing in his bedroom the night of February 25th, 2012, when he awoke to the couple's dog barking, then heard a noise in the master bathroom. He grabbed his 38 caliber Taurus revolver from the nightstand and turned a corner to the bathroom and pulled the trigger when he was startled by a form. Instead of an intruder, he said, he found Maria Oysterhound on the floor, a gunshot wound to the back of her head. The 65-year-old St. Petersburg College professor died instantly. I did not intentionally shoot my wife, he said. Oysterhout's sometimes tearful account seemed to be in sharp contrast with his demeanor on the 911 recording. In a calm, flat voice, he told the operator that he had just shot his wife. The operator asked why. We had an argument, and Oysterhound replied. The operator interrupted him to ask where he put the gun. That monotone is about as cold as you'll ever hear, Assistant State Attorney Bill Caddo said during closing arguments. Why Caddo asked was Osterhout so calm? Why did he tell the operator he wouldn't resist when deputies arrived? Why did he twice say he'd done the most heinous thing I've done in my life? Cato said a comment Oysterhound made to the deputy was also a key piece of evidence. My life is over, is what Oysterhound said. That lets you into his head in the heat of the moment, as well as any kind of physical evidence we could have, Cato said. Oysterhound admitted that the couple had discussed divorce. He said they argued earlier that night, but he couldn't remember why. Defense attorney Kenneth Foote said investigators failed to produce enough evidence to, pr to prove Oysterhound intentionally pulled the trigger. Oysterhound said the couple slept in separate bedrooms, so it would have been unusual for her to be in the master bathroom at the time of the night. Foote noted that in crime scene photos, a door leading from the bathroom to the pool area was open, and a set of keys was found on the floor by Maria Oysterhound's leg. Maybe she let herself in through the bathroom's other door and made the noise her husband heard, Foote said. He said Oysterhound could have remained silent but told them what happened. The state doesn't want you to believe those words, Foote said. They only want you to believe the 911 tape and the assumptions that go along with it. Raymond Carter called his stepfather's story bullshit. Oysterhound has always had a temper, Carter said, and was probably jealous of the attention being showered upon his wife as she neared retirement. Jealousy turned to rage, Carter said. If it was an accident, he would have said that 19 months ago. So that's all you have. I mean, that's all I have of that particular 911 call. So let's jump to another call. April 2, 2014, 658. 
2.22 p.m. Nine one one. Where's your emergency? Hi, I need an ambulance at five two one two Heathrow Hills Boulevard. Five two one two. Yeah, five two one two Heathrow Hills. What's, go- what's going on? Seven zero two seven. Um, there is a adult male with um, I think a stab wound. I don't think he's breathing. I need an ambulance like, How right away. How did he get stabbed? I'm not sure. I just walked through the door. There's blood everywhere. Okay. How old is? Are you related to him? He's my father-in-law. He's sixty-five. All right. Is anyone else at your house right now? Uh, yeah, my husband. He's having a nervous breakdown. I don't really know what's going on. I need I need an ambulance right away. Please. I understand that. What's your name? My name is Kristen. Last name? Not Cantrell. C A N T R E L L. The victim's name is Oliver Cantrell. Okay. I'm gonna have police and fire on the way. I want you to stay on the phone with me. Okay. We're not. We're not Oliver, gonna hang up. I don't know when it happened. Oliver. Oliver. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Okay. Oh, my God, I just got here. I was at work. You, you're doing fine. Is he breathing? Can you put your ear to no, his mouth? No, he's not breathing. He's pale. He's white. I put his hand on my mouth. I can't find a pulse. He's lost a lot of blood. Okay. All right. Oliver, Oliver, his eyes are open. I mean, I don't okay. know what to do. Now, does it appear that he was stabbed or he stabbed himself? I can't tell. I don't know, and okay. I don't know. I don't want to touch him. I don't know what to yeah, do. There's blood yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Hold on. Don't. Oliver. A knife. Is there a knife there still? Yes, the knife is laying beside him. Okay, don't touch that. Is it a okay. large knife? Yeah, it's a kitchen knife. Okay, I'm going to get us to My mother-in-law's pulling in the driveway. Okay, I'm going to get us to like this. Okay. I'm going to get us to the ambulance, and we're going to help you. Don't hang up. I, I think he's dead. I don't know. I'm still here. I'm still here with you. Oh, my mother-in-law's dead. What is her shit? Was she gets- Hi, I have an adult adult male stab wound. Five two adult male stab wound. Five two one two Heathrow Hills Drive. Sprint one three seven zero two seven. We are on the way, ma'am. Are you with him now? Okay, I'm I'm with him now. Okay. He doesn't know if he's breathing. Okay. I, I don't think he's breathing. His Can't eyes tell if he's breathing or not, ma'am. He's, I don't think he's breathing. He's pale. So that 911 call that you heard um, was a daughter-in-law calling for her father-in-law, who she found on the floor from an apparent stab wound and was bleeding profusely. And here's an article that I found pertaining to that. I found it from Brentwood homepage, I guess is where I found it, or williamsonhomepage.com. And this is what it is. The headline reads, Son charged with criminal homicide and stabbing death of Heathrow Hills retired architect. Retired architect died in his home. Heathrow Hills home as a result of multiple stab wounds, and his 31-year-old son has been charged with criminal homicide. He is being held at Williamson County Jail on a million-dollar bond. Jeez. An official arrest has been announced in last night's fatal stabbing at uh, 5212 Heathrow Hills Drive. Daniel Cantrell, the son of victim Oliver Cantrell, 
has been charged with criminal homicide. He's currently being held on a million-dollar bond at a Williamson County jail. An initial court date has been set for April 17th. A retired architect died of stab wounds at the helm. Police have identified the victim as Oliver R. Cantrell, Jr., 65. His 31-year-old son, a Franklin resident who has not been identified, remained in police custody early Thursday morning, but had not yet been charged with any crime. Cantrell was discovered at his 5212 Heathrow Hills home with multiple stab wounds after police received a 911 call at 6.58 p.m. in the evening. Only the father and son were home at the time. According to Assistant Police Chief Tommy Walsh, police responded to the report of a male suspect who was found unresponsive. Despite life-saving measures, Cantrell was pronounced dead at the scene. We do not believe anyone was present at the time the incident occurred. Neighbors said the man and his wife, a retired attorney, had lived at the house for two decades. A blue tarp remained draped over the home's front door, and the deceased man was still inside as investigators collected evidence late Wednesday. We're working a death investigation, and we work every death investigation as if it's a homicide unless we prove otherwise. Police didn't release any other details about the stabbing, but said they don't believe there are any suspects. Neighbors said they saw one of the couple's two sons walking with the wife earlier in the week. The couple planned to sell their home and move into a smaller residence. It was a nice family, said neighbor Jane Dunnigan. Heathrow Hills, which is nestled behind the Woodway subdivision west of Franklin Road, is a popular destination during the Christmas season because of the neighbor's elaborate, neighborhood's elaborate holiday decorations. Walsh said the investigation is ongoing and he would release additional information as it became available. So unfortunately, that's all I could find about it. Um, I'm sure if I digged a little deeper, but I'm really not going to dig that much deeper for just a small little phone call that's not even that long. But apparently, I imagine, you know, they were scuffling about something. Maybe they're arguing. Maybe the son has some mental illnesses that they were unaware of. Who knows? The story, just leave your imagination to it. But unfortunately, that's all I could find about it. There wasn't really a lot to go on. And this article is from April 2nd of 2014, the same year in which I believe that incident occurred. So let's move on to another call. I am. Thanks. 
Um, I live in Maplewood, and I heard shots fired, probably about 10 of them. Did you hear anything else besides the shots? Yeah, a bunch of people screaming, and it's, I believe it's coming from behind us in Paseo. Did you hear what any of the voices were saying or anything like that? Um, I could just hear screaming, and I heard one lady scream, um, get the kids. So that 911 phone call that you heard that actually kind of, I don't know, for me, it was kind of horrifying because to hear the panic of the people crying in the background, it, it, I laugh, but it's not a laughing matter. It's its just kind of um, disturbing, especially if you've never been in an experience like that. Or I hope you never experience anything like that, especially what this unfortunate family had to endure. Um, it's just, its a, it's a very panicky situation most people like you heard in the phone call uh what had happened was a relative um during thanksgiving dinner for some reason no apparent reason why i'm sure we'll find out when we when i read the article about the particular case decided to kill his family and including a six-year-old girl unfortunately this fucking piece of shit decided to kill this innocent little girl that probably didn't have anything to do with what he was going through or whatever but for some reason he decided to end her life by shooting her in the head along with her other relatives and uh some of them fled to a nearby neighbor's house where they proceeded to ask for help and what you heard was the owner of that neighbor's house that they went to calling 911 where she panicked and you know she just couldn't believe what was going on what happened right next door to her. But here's the article about that particular incident. I got this from CNN.com. A Florida man pleaded guilty Thursday to murdering four relatives on Thanksgiving Day in 2009, avoiding a possible death sentence after reaching a plea deal with prosecutors. After hearing from relatives of the victims, Palm Beach County Circuit Judge Joseph Marks sentenced Paul Murhage to seven life terms. As part of the agreement, the defendant agreed to waive any rights of appeal. You'll never see the light of day, Marks told the 37-year-old Murridge on Thursday in front of a packed West Palm Beach courtroom. Having shaved his head and tried to disguise his 2007 blue Toyota Camry with a car cover and switching its license plate, Murridge was arrested in January of 2010 at a Florida Keys motel after an America's Most Wanted viewer recognized him. He was on a computer when U.S. Marshals burst into his second-floor room at the Edgewater Lodge, where he had checked in under the name John Baca, according to authorities. Murhich was then charged with four counts of premeditated murder and three counts attempted first-degree murder in the Thanksgiving night shooting deaths of his twin sisters, a six-year-old cousin and a 79-year-old aunt at a family home in Jupiter, Florida. One of the victims, Lisa Knight, who was 33, who was once of Murhidge's sisters, um, who was one of Murhidge's sisters, was pregnant. Her husband, Patrick, was one of two other family members who survived after being wounded in the shooting rampage, authorities said. Family, family members suggested in interviewers, I, I believe that's supposed to say in interviews, <laughs> that Murhidge had ongoing resentment for some of his relatives. Jupiter Police spokeswoman Sally Collins Ortiz said shortly after the shootings, Patrick Knight, who was shot in the stomach, was among the family members who told the judge Thursday that he approved the plea deal. He explained that he wanted to pick up the pieces and did not want to endure 20 years of appeals. But Jim Sinton, whose six-year-old daughter, Michaela, was among those gunned down, objected to the agreement as he wanted Murhidge to go on trial and potentially face the death penalty. He urged the judge to delay the sentencing so he could prepare a proper presentation, 
with an attorney to deal his argument to detail his argument. Near the end of his statement Thursday, the judge sternly told Sitton, then carrying a large picture of his daughter, to stop after he knelt down. The plea decision is far too important to rush through without any time for us, for all of us, to think, said Sitton, accusing the state of trying to push the deal through. We've been waiting patiently for almost two years for this case to come to trial. Justice is that is what is at stake here. The state of Murray's trial had been set for January. His public defenders had filed court documents expressing their intent to defend him using an insanity defense. After Thursday's court proceeding, state attorney Michael McAuliffe, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, released a statement in which he said that after careful evaluation and consideration, he decided to accept Murhidge's plea, having determined it is an appropriate resolution to the case. Nothing that, not, Noting the desperate opinions among the victim's family members and about the death penalty genera, generally, McAuliffe said he felt it's, it's sufficient that Murhidge will have no hope of having favorable rulings by a court and will have no ability to affect the lives of those he harmed. I believe that seven consecutive life sentences recognize the heinous nature of the crimes and adequately punish the defendant, he said. So that's all I have for that particular 911 call. But it's sad because this piece of shit of a human being really hated his family, I guess, that much that he decided to, like, honestly, like, it's because I have a daughter, the fact that this person decided to kill that little girl what did that little girl have to do with it maybe it was just in the heat of the passion he just shot the first people he saw but what a fucking scumbag that he chose to shoot this fucking this innocent six-year-old girl that had nothing to do with the reason why he hated his family but for some reason he hated his family nobody knows except for him and whoever you believe in that's whether you believe in god or fucking buddha whatever you believe in only they know only he and they know and that's fucking sad because I hate that shit. Like, as as me, who's a father, you know, just that's fucking your piece of shit. <laughs> and I hope he just burns in whatever place he belongs to. He's a fucking scumbag. But anyways, let's move on to another call. Hello? Yes, we're at the Nelson building and there's some man here with the doctor who came into the board meeting. Okay, you're at the Nelson building? Yes, on Balboa, 1311 Balboa. Okay, where is he at right now? He's in the boardroom. Boardroom, can you give me a description? What color is he? Black, white? He's white, um, tall, kind of heavy set. Um, what color shirt? He has on a blue shirt, I think. Blue yeah. shirt. Okay, has he fired the weapon? He has not fired a weapon, but he pulled out a weapon. Tammy, okay, hold on. He did pull it out? He said that he said you fired my wife. Home. He said that you fired my wife and pulled out his gun. He's in the boardroom at the Nelson building. Yes, some of the board members are out. Um, I don't see everybody. Uh, so there is it possible? Is there some people still in the boardroom? Is there someone still in the boardroom? Yes, there's some people how still many? in the boardroom. Can we find out how uh, many? Several of the board members and the superintendent, probably about four or five people. There still is subject. He kept them in. He's got them hostage in the boardroom. He's saying uh, the rest of us who are in the boardroom are out. Do we have a number of how many people are in there? Yes, we believe five. Five. Okay, hold on. I'm just updating my officers. Just a moment. This is, this is oh my gosh, he's firing. Okay. He's firing. Okay. He 
Okay. Firing. I don't know. See, it turns out. Are you secure? Where you are you going to have your left? Okay. We need an ambulance. All right. We've got a tennis been shot. Who's been shot? Who's been shot? Oh, my God. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. There were one of the board members is out, but there's three board members, the school board attorney and the superintendent, but he just fired the gun. It, it turns out it's a delay on the screen. Okay, and we that's fine. Know that. Okay, listen. We have ambulance in round. Okay. We think he's down on the floor. She thinks the gunman's down on the floor from her oh, video. The police just came in. The police just got here. What? They're trying to get into the boardroom. Oh, we've got tons of police. So that disturbing phone call that you heard was of indeed a man walking into a school board um, meeting. Pulls out a gun. Uh, not sure what he's really demanding, but before he even pulls out the gun, there's actually a video related to it. So if you're curious and you can stomach it, you can actually view the actual incident when it happened. Uh, so he pulls out a gun. Well, actually, before he even pulls out the gun again, uh, he spray paints the V symbol from V for Vendetta. If you're not familiar with that movie that was directed by the Wyszkowski brothers, or well, at the time they were the brothers, but they are now known as the Wyszkowski sisters because they both... Um, transition to females uh but anyways that's another story for another time but uh yeah so he spray paints that on the wall during the school board meeting then proceeds to pull out the gun I'm not really sure why he's even doing it but i found an article by abc news uh talking about that particular incident so let's dive into the article a gunman killed himself after opening fire on a florida school board meeting he was confronted by two school officials, one who attacked him with her purse. Oh, yeah, that's right. In the video, you can see that she's actually has more balls than the fucking men on the school board. And another, the security chief who fired his gun at the shooter. Police said a 56 year old man disrupted the Bay District School Board meeting in Panama City, Florida, walked up to the podium, pulled out a can of red spray paint and painted a large letter V with a circle around it, hence the V for Vendetta symbol. The shooter approached the front of the board members, spray-painted a symbol on the wall, and fired an unknown amount of rounds, said Panama City Police Department spokesman Sergeant Jeff Becker. After he painted the symbol, he was confronted by a board member, Ginger Littleton, who knocked the gun with her purse, he said. Inside the meeting was reporter Nadine Yans of ABC News affiliate WMBB-TV, who shot exclusive video of the incident. The gunman released all of the women and children, but held an unspecified number of men. A firefight broke out between the gunman and Mike Jones, a former school board member and district security chief, Becker said. After reviewing the evidence, the suspect took his own life, said Becker. Police would not confirm the shooter's identity until his family had been notified. Becker would not speculate on the shooter's motive or meaning of the V symbol. Becker also would not confirm the total number of bullets fired. Yane said at least 10 shots were fired. No other injuries were reported. Police are watching the video Yane shot of the confrontation. Beth Del Luzane, executive director of the Bay Education Foundation, who works on the second floor of the building, said she was not told to leave and things seemed to be under control. Apparently, whoever did the threatening is not a threat at this point, she told the Associated Press. So that's how, all I have that particular case. But again, if you're curious and you want to uh, watch the actual incident unfold, you can find the video on YouTube. All you have to do is just search Panama City, Florida School Board meeting shooting and you'll be able to find the video there. Uh, but again, like if you can stomach it, go for it. Let's move on to another call. Stand for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. 
221 Rock, Rock Pyramid Road. What's Send the problem? The police. Send the police. What's hey. the problem there? The, the, the chip killed my, my friend. What's the problem with your friend? Oh, please. What's the problem with your friend? I need to know. What is the problem? He's killing my friend. Who's killing your friend? My chimpanzee. Oh, your chimpanzee Wait. is killing your friend. Yes. He, he ripped her apart. Hurry up. With a gun. Hurry up, please. There's someone on the way. With guns, please. You shoot him. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what the monkey is doing. He ripped her face off. He ripped her face off? He tried to attack me. Okay, I need you to calm down a little bit. They're on the way. Can you push yourself away? I don't want the monkey attacking you. Please, hurry up. Listen to me. Uh, they're on the way, ma'am. They got to shoot them. Please. Please, hurry, hurry. Are you there with your friend? I need you to help your friend. Can you go help your friend? I can't. He tried to attack me now. Is he still there with your friend? Yes. Okay, so then back off. Then don't get any closer, okay? They're already on the way. Please. If the monkey moves away from your friend, let me know, okay? So we could try to help your friend. No. No, I can't. She's dead. She's dead. Why Why are you saying that she's dead? She's dead. He ripped her apart. He ripped what apart? Her face? My, everything. Oh, he ripped my, her apart? Listen, I think I'm going to flee. I think I'm going to pass No, no, just breathe, okay? I'm going to stay I with you on the phone until they get there. Listen, please, hurry. Please, please, hurry. <laughs> oh, my God. they got to have their guns out. they they got to have their guns out. Listen to me. Oh, my God. Is this your monkey or whose monkey yes. is it? It's your monkey. No, it's mine. How, how, do you know how big is he? How, yes, how many 200 pounds? 400 pounds. 400? 200. 200 pounds? Listen to me, please. Where are they? Where are they? And he's a chimp, correct? Yes. Where, where are they? They're going your way. They're going as fast as they can your way, okay? Please. Please go faster. Please, please, Derek. Please, please. <laughs> Please, please. Is the monkey still by your friend, or can you get close to your friend? He's eating her. Please. God, oh, please. Okay, I need you to calm down for me. I know it's hard, okay? I know it's hard. But they're going as fast as they can your way, okay? Oh, my God. Please. Please. They tell them they got to shoot him because I tried stabbing him, and he's not, and it made him worse. Okay, Sandra. Have them shoot him. They will. Sandra, I already have the fire department close by, okay? So as soon as the police get there, the fire department is going to move in, okay? The fire department can't move in yet, but as soon as the police officers show up... Please tell them. Shoot him because he's going to try to attack me now. Just breathe, Sandra. Shoot him! Shoot him! Sandra, stay in your car. Shoot him! Sandra, I need you to stay in your car. Shoot him, please. I tried stabbing him. And, and he's hurt now, too. So so he's going to attack anybody. I can't get out of this car. Lock your doors on your car and stay it, there with me. It don't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter. He will rip the doors right Sandra, open. just do what I'm please, telling you to. Stay in the car. The police officers will handle it. Please tell him to shoot him. They did, Sandra. They're shooting at him already, okay? But he's not dead. I know. They will continue until he's dead, okay? I just need you to stay on the phone with me and breathe. He's not dead. He's not dead.
not dead. He's not dead. Oh, God. Oh, God. So that 911 call that you heard was a chimpanzee that attacked a friend. Well, the pet's owner, chimpanzee, attacked her friend. Her name was Sandy. The reason why I'm laughing is because I know it's not something to laugh about because somebody almost died. They were attacked by a fucking chimpanzee. It's just funny to hear the chimpanzee in the beginning of the phone call, like, screaming. And she's like, oh, my God, you just hear the chimpanzee. Anyways, um, let's get serious. Um, So the article I found... Pertaining to that particular incident, uh, it comes from New York Daily News, um, and let's just dive into it. The Connecticut woman whose friend's pet chimpanzee ripped off her face and hands in a savage 2009 attack is back in the hospital seven years later because her body is rejecting her face transplant. So yes, after she was mauled by the chimpanzee, she went into surgery to get a face transplant. So this particular article is actually about after the incident not they go into the details of the actual incident but this is a little bit after um her face transplant carla nash 62 was hospitalized after military funded drug treatment program at boston's brigham and women's hospital to wean her off anti-rejection medication failed and her body began to reject her new face i gave it my all and no my participation in the study will still be beneficial nash said in a statement to the associated press i'd do it all over again if i could The men and women serving our country are the true heroes. Nash was mauled nearly to death by her friend Sandy Harold's pet chimpanzee named Travis, whom Harold, who raised from birth and regarded as her son. The 200-pound domesticated chimp uncharacteristically snapped and attacked Nash when she went to pick up the ape, when she went to pick the ape up at Harold Stamford, Connecticut house. The deranged beast tore off the helpless woman's hands, nose, lips, and eyelids. Investigators later speculated that a dose of Xanax caused the chimp to go berserk. A police officer who responded to the scene of the attack shot and killed Travis when he clawed open the cop's cruiser door and flashed his bloody teeth. <laughs> Nash was left... I'm sorry, it's just funny because he he flashed his bloody teeth and stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just find it kind of funny. Anyways, Nash was left blind by the attack because she had transmit, she had transmitted a disease from the chimp. She also had to undergo face implant surgery in 2011, leaving her disfigured and unrecognizable. In 2012, Nash won a $4 million settlement with the estate of Harold, who died in 2010. She later tried to sue the state of Connecticut in 2014, pointing to a state memo written a year before the gruesome attack that described Travis the Chimp as an accident waiting to happen. She was denied the right to sue. Doctors have taken Nash off the failed experimental drug program and are putting her back on her original anti-rejection medication that she had been on since her 2011 operation in the hopes her body will stop rejecting the facial transplant. So it's good to finally be back. And unfortunately, that's the last 911 call that I have for you. But... All good things must come to an end. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Disturbing 911 Calls. It's been a while since I've done one, so I thought, why not break the new year in by... Actually, I know, and it's been a month already, and I haven't fucking done shit, really. I know. (laughs) I'm starting this new 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 year off to a bang, I guess, in a way. Not really. But I know, I procrastinated... I can't even say that fucking word right. I 
have been taking my time doing episodes actually um you know i have a few episodes uh well topics at least i actually haven't gone to record everything because i haven't really had the time to research anything and it's taken me quite a while to even try to get this episode together because uh believe it or not it was kind of hard to find like good juicy 911 call so maybe this episode you didn't even find that disturbing or whatever but having said that fuck it you know i'm just glad to be back it's been a while since i've you know but hopefully this year is better and i want to thank each and every one of you guys for taking the time to listen to the episodes and if you're new to strange talk podcast thank you for taking the time to listen to strange talk podcast because although there are many podcasts out there that cover true crime you chose to listen to strange talk podcast now, having said that, um, you know, I'm just glad to be back, to be honest with you. I'm just glad to be back, and hopefully I can just uh, keep my routine up. So again, if you're new to Strange Talk Podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. If you want to send me stuff, you could do so on Instagram via DM at Strange Talk Podcast. Or if you want to just send me news articles for This Week in Crime episodes, which happen every other Wednesday, and I upload a new episode every Wednesday. Um, well, the way it works, my schedule, if you're new to Strange Talk Podcast, uh, is one Wednesday is an episode, next week's Wednesday is This Week in Crime, and This Week in Crime is where I find weird or strange or downright fucked up articles, news articles from around the world, but right here in good old America. Uh, so I bring the news to you so you don't have to scour the internet finding particular strange, weird news. But also, um... If you want to help the podcast, you know, the best way you can do that is by reviewing the podcast, Strange Talk Podcast, on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen to Strange Talk Podcast. If you can, if you're able to review it, please review it, whatever you feel I deserve, because that only, that helps the podcast by just helping it get more popular and get it known in there. But also the best way you can help Strange Talk Podcast is not with just money, but with actually referring it to your friends, family, relatives whatever the fuck you want to, you know, just mention it to them because it helps grow the audience. So again, thank you for taking the time to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. Again, if you want to reach me via Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, you can do so by following that. Or if you want to send me to my email at strangetalkpodcast.outlook.com, I'll be more than happy to look at whatever you send me there. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. As always, stay strange. <laughs>